I did send a, a tweet out to everyone this week saying that I'm going to be sharing some vision and strategy for the year. And I'd like to do that in two parts. I'd like to talk quite generally this week, and then next week quite specifically in terms of some of the life of the church, life groups, kids' ministry, etc., etc. This is still ringing like a... Um, yeah? So I'll just carry on until I get it right. And so um, I'm purposely going to be more general this week and then more specific next week. And, and I hope that it will give you something of the heart. We know that the vision of this church is around the gospel. It's around Jesus. We're not changing that. So in some ways, the vision is consistent. It carries on. Some of the details might change, but the big picture essentially stays the same. All right? And so I've, I've called this message this morning simply a community compelled by love. A community compelled by love. As I was resting over the holidays, I felt God give me this phrase just before we, we went on leave. It was simply this. We are a covenant community on a mission together. A covenant community on a mission together. And I feel like that encapsulates something of what God has for us as a church as we move forward. A covenant community on a mission together. You and I are on a mission together for Jesus. Okay? We are all part of this mission that God has for us. And so there are many definitions of vision. Uh, If you read any book on leadership or vision setting, if you're involved in business, vision and the setting of, of vision can be defined in many ways. I want to give you a very simple definition this morning. I believe vision is a preferred future based on clearly communicated values. We all have a future. I choose God's future for my life. That is my preferred future, is God's future for myself and my family. And that is clearly understood and communicated as we simply look at some values of the gospel and what they are and what they mean and what the implications are for my life and for your life. So we have a preferred future. And this church, this community of faith, has a preferred future, which is God's preferred future for our lives. And I trust that as I share over the next couple of weeks, that you will be encouraged and stirred and your faith will be enlarged and you'll believe to start or continue to believe God for great things this year. I guess it's inevitable whenever you start a year that um, you might feel a compulsion or you might feel uh, the need to to be enthusiastic about the year. Well, I want to say this to you quite honestly. At the beginning of 2011, I didn't feel particularly enthusiastic about the year. We had been through a whole lot of stuff in our family and in the church, and I wasn't feeling particularly buoyant. I wasn't feeling particularly like, this is going to be a great year. Since it's good to be honest. 2012, now, I really feel like this is going to be a good year. Yeah. I felt like God said to me in the shower that something of the battles that we've been through have ceased, and now it's time to build again. This is going to be a building year. Not a battling year, but a building year. All right? I believe that prophetically, I believe that's what God has spoken to me, and I trust something of the faith that I feel for this year. It will encourage you, and that you'll start to stir your own faith for great things this year. Our church... Uh, vision statement is essentially simple and clear. It's simply this, rooted in Christ, 
planted in family, fruitful in life. And I want to encourage you, as I've been doing, to get online, to familiarize yourself with that, get on the webpage, look at the blogs that I'm, I'm writing and that others are going to write this year, because we're trying, to, we're trying to make it quite clear and quite plain what we're about. And the easiest way to communicate is through preaching and through writing. And uh, I want to encourage you, get into a discipline of getting on and looking what's on the webpage, what, what, is, what is available to you, and familiarize yourself with what the church is about. Okay? So what does it mean to be rooted in Christ? And we've been, looking, we've been looking at that for a number of years. And quite simply, to be rooted in Christ, one of the big things is obviously that you're saved, that you know Him. This is still ringing, Callum. I don't know if it's in the monitors. Yep. Sorry, mate. Is this on? No. Maybe it's just this mic. We need to get another one that goes like this. All right. It means to be saved. It means also that you have a revelation of the gospel and that you are rooted in the gospel. Here is the gospel summarized in one sentence. This is the gospel, that we are saved by God's grace, not because we have earned anything, and we don't try and seek God's favor. We are saved by grace. It's a free gift so that none of us can boast simply because Jesus died for us. That is the gospel. That is what this church is about. To be rooted in Christ means that in your own life you are rooted in that basic understanding that you don't have to earn your salvation. Your salvation has been bought for you by the blood of Jesus. He revealed himself in human form. He came and he limited all of his glory. He limited, limited his omnipotence in a sense. And he came and lived amongst us as a baby. He was born in a stable. That's what we celebrated over Christmas. And that he died. He was sinless. He was perfect. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements under the law. And because of his sinless obedience in his life, we are set free. And we are bought with a magnificent price, the blood of Jesus. And we live free because of what Christ has done. This is a glorious gospel. This is not a gospel of religion. This is not a gospel that says you have to fast and pray, although fasting is good sometimes and praying is good. This is not a gospel that says that if you don't read your Bible, you're going to hell. It is very good to read your Bible. And I encourage you to read your Bible, to be disciplined about these basic spiritual things. But they don't save you. What saves you is what Christ has done for you. And that is incredibly freeing. This is the gospel of Jesus. So how do we live then as a gospel-centered community? Well, quite simply, we focus on Jesus in everything and at all times. We focus on Christ. So when I say I'm painting vision for this year, what is the vision? The vision is Jesus. The vision is that perfect law that brings freedom. Haven't we been looking at James? That's what James the Apostle says. He says there's, there's, there's a Mosaic law. You don't look at that anymore. You look at the perfect mirror of the law of freedom, which is Christ. He's the perfect law of freedom. And as you gaze upon Him, as you worship Him, you are magnificently transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you become like Him. That's not religion. That's not legalism. That is the gospel. That is freedom. That is grace. That is what we preach. This is Paul's gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. And so Jesus is our highest boast. He's the reason that we sing. He's, he stirs the passion in us every time that we get together to worship. If there's no passion in our hearts when we worship, then perhaps we have to say, Lord, show me more of yourself. 
Because when, when you show me yourself, I can't help but worship. You're getting what I'm saying? It's not the band's fault. You know, if, if the preaching is not good, you know, it shouldn't, actually, it shouldn't actually worry you if you are a worshiper. Because even when the preaching is really bad, you should still be able to worship. Because you're not worshiping the preacher, you're worshiping him. Uh, we desire to preach well. We want to preach well. Absolutely. Every single person that gets into this pulpit wants to get, wants to preach well. And just to prepare you for two weeks' time, Becky's going to preach in a couple of weeks' time. You're going to preach about worship. This is magnificent. We want to see other people preach. Yeah, and I'm sure she wants to do well. But we don't look at the preacher. We're looking at the perfect author of grace, who is Jesus. He's our boast. He's the one that stirs passion in our hearts. It means that the gospel is what defines us. And it means it's the gospel that brings us together as brothers and sisters. Okay? That is the bond that brings us together. It's got nothing to do with culture. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we like each other. I mean, that's good that we like each other, and it's good that some people want to be here. Uh, fantastic. But that actually what draws us together is Christ. Yes? It must be. It's, uh, this community can only be built around the center of Christ, the cornerstone, the capstone, as Petri wonderfully said in a sermon last week. The capstone is Jesus. He's the reason for everything. He's the cornerstone. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the one that we want to be about in every way. And so we are on a mission together, this church. A community centered around Christ, centered around the cross, around the cross, and we are on a mission together, and the mission is what? The mission is to preach the gospel with our words and through our lives and reaching to other people's lives and to see many people come into the kingdom because of the way that we live. That is the mission that you and I are on. We are on a mission together. This church is on a mission together. And I trust you'll get excited about the mission that we are on together. And so I want to encourage you that part of that journey, we are all at different stages of our journey. I can't believe that tomorrow we're celebrating 19 years of marriage. I can believe the first time I met Helen's dad. We were on Skype yesterday with, uh, with our folks. And um, I, I, I'd never met him when I asked, uh, when I asked him to marry Helen. <laughs> I don't recommend this to anybody, all right? We had known each other for a couple of months, and, and I, we decided to get married. A couple of weeks, even. So I rocked up. At those days, I used to wear very floral shirts. <laughs> I had the cerise pink and blue shirt on. And I thought I, look, I was, looked quite smart, and I had an earring at that stage, believe it or not. And um, I, I rocked up, and I said, I said uh, Mr. Van Houten, I'd like to marry your wife, Helen. So, uh, your daughter, that's perhaps why he was around. Your daughter, Helen. And, and um, he was, I mean, I could see he was uncomfortable. And so, uh, the first six months of our, our marriage, we were still courting each other, and I was trying to win his family, win, win the family over in some ways as well. And I said to him as a joke yesterday, if I haven't convinced you after 19 years uh, that we're going to make it, because I think he was nervous that we weren't going to make it, you know, because it was so quick. But anyway, we made it, 19 years. And um, why did I get on to say that? Because it's a journey. 
And we're all at different stages of our journey. And I want to encourage you that part of the journey is learning in your own life to exalt every the gospel above everything in your life. Every good thing that happens to you, every blessing that you receive, every, every bad thing that happens to you, what is exalted above all of those is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the most glorious thing that can ever happen to you. It is better than the best thing that has ever happened to you. It's infinitely better than the worst thing. that It's life. And so that means that for you and I, as we journey together, that there's an intentional, purposeful thing that happens in our lives, that we protect ourselves from every form of religion. I want to say this to you. The natural default of every single person is legalism. It is the natural default. Because we want to feel like we have contributed to our salvation. We want to please God. It's good to want to please God. And, but, but then we fall back into this legalism and thinking that actually if we do stuff, it's going to please God. Of course, He loves it when we obey and He pours out blessing. Absolutely. But it's not, that doesn't earn us salvation. It doesn't earn us anything. All your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, my friends. Every single one of us, I include myself. So we want to protect ourselves from any kind of form of religion that's driven by this false kind of supposition. And at the same time, we want to free ourselves from an idol-driven culture that seeks to seduce us into the way of the world. Because Jesus said, you are living in this world, but you are a journey, you're a sojourner in this world. This is not your home. You are pitching your life. Your life is a tent. You have pitched your tent of your life, and you live in a tent for a while, and ultimately we go and be with Him in glory. And that's what it's really about. And don't get seduced. Don't get seduced about about this world, that this is, this is as good as it gets. This is just a foretaste. This is, this is a very poor hors d'oeuvre to the main course that is still to come. And the, still, the, the course that is still to come is Jesus in glory with Him. So, that's a little bit about the gospel, rooted in Christ. What have I planted in this family? Well, when you get saved, when you come to salvation, when you come to faith, you automatically become part of the universal church of God that has been for eons. It's been for thousands of years since Jesus came, uh, the, the church that he's been part of. And you are joined with a band of brothers. You are joined with those that, were, that knew Christ and were sacrificed in the Colosseum. You are joined with those that have been martyred throughout the ages. You are joined with those right now who at this present time are Christians all over the world. You are joined to the body of Christ when you believe. Isn't that a glorious thing? But we are also, that is worked out as we are planted in a local family. Part of genuine biblical conversion is that we are converted to Christ. And as Greg Downs pointed out a couple of months ago, we are converted to Christ, but we are also converted to community. We are part of a local church, and we are converted at the same time to the cause of Christ. Rooted in Christ, planted in family, fruitful in life. All three of those things are part of biblical conversion. If one of those things is missing, we are not genuinely converted. Uh, we, we, we are not, we are not, our conversion is deficient in some way. This is the language that Paul uses in the Bible. This is the scriptural language. It says we are a body. We are a bride. We are a body that needs each other. How can the body say, one part of the body say, I don't need you? It, 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 the language of the, of, of the Bible is communal. It is always about more than the individual. 
We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The language of the scripture is always collective. It is more than the individual. And certainly the church and local lampstands, local churches, are made up of individuals that God magnificently joins together and unites their hearts, and there's a family that gets built. And I want to say this strongly, and I, I, I am aware, it has been a growing thing for me over the last five years to see this rip apart local churches. There is a thing that is evil. It is pernicious. It is an idol in our culture, and it is the enemy of true biblical community. Okay? I want to say this strongly, but I hope gently at the same time. It's the idol of individualism. And I want to say to you, if we are going to become the church, the faith community, the community of believers that God intends us to be as far as town church, then we've got to allow God to, to put the sword into our own hearts and something of this needs to die in your and my life. Okay? It's the idol of me. And I want, to I want to say some things that I said at John and Heather's wedding because I felt like God gave me some wisdom and some understanding of this thing that has been impacting local churches. And I want to say to you, I'm going to give you some things out of the newspaper that I read last week that just lit up my heart and made me feel so glad an article written in, in, in the Sunday Telegraph by a guy called Peter Osborne just talking about how the church is growing in London. What a testimony of the last 10 years. The church is growing in London, statistical fact. And that should encourage you. So I'm going to do two little things now, right? First the negative, then the positive, all right? It is true that we live in a Facebook world. We live in a Twitter world. We live in a... An age, age of milliseconds and an age of instant communication. Now, I think those things are very positive. It's also true that we live in a world where you can go to Starbucks or whatever your favorite coffee thing is, and you can get an instant variety of coffees. You can get skinny latte, you can get, you can get full cream, you can get cappuccino, macchiato, you can get whatever you want, whatever you fancy, you get it instantly. And uh, all of you need to go up to the Starbucks because... Um, you started working there now, haven't you? Yeah. So this, this is a, also a world where, you know, we're encouraged to read blogs and every blogger has an opinion and we're told that every opinion is equally valid as the next opinion. This is a, this is a world where relationships are treated as casually as coffee choices. And I want to say one of the things I found disturbing is how people so easily join a church and just waft out of a church without even saying goodbye. This is the idol of individualism. This is, I am the most important thing in the world, and I will live as I choose. This is not covenant community. This is never going to build anything. And God is interested in numbers in this sense. God wants to see many sons come to glory for the sake of His glory. God wants to see many joined and knitting their hearts together so that they can build together and see the kingdom come. Something of heaven on earth now. And I want to promise you I'm not angry. Right? I really ain't. I'm, I'm so full of faith for this year. But I want to say, I, I want to see that change in the church. That we, our relationships are dear to us. They're not casual. That we don't discard people on whims. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's a world where real relationship 
real relationship with real people that sit next to you in the pew is discarded for internet intimacy, which is like, it's fantasy. And so men will give up relationship with the real woman that's sitting next to them because of their weak will, and they'll get onto the internet and they will, they will, they will um, replace what is real for a fantasy. A fake tanned, surgically proportioned, perfectly airbrushed, Katie Price, page three, lookalike. And that's what they will, they will give themselves to. And they've got a real person sitting next to them that they don't have any intimacy or any community with at all. Something is wrong. This is a world of convenience and self-centeredness on a massive, massive scale. We are, many people are motivated by basic selfishness. What is good for me is good for, that's the anthem that people sing. And this is the other thing I said at John's wedding, Heather's wedding. Fortunately, God has always spoken into that self-centered, sick, broken world. He's always spoken into that world and he continues to speak the same message. And his message is a completely different language. It's a completely different message. His message, his gospel, speaks of an other-centeredness. He says because of his love for us, he laid aside all of his glory and he was prepared to do that and he's prepared to come and live with us and lay aside all that was due him and live with us simply because he loved us. The Bible says that God so loved the world. Again, it's more than just the individual. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He invaded our space. He invaded our time. He took the form of a baby and he came and he lived with us because he loves us. It's magnificent. And God calls all of those that are his, all of those that know him, he calls us to a noble call. And this is the noble call that he calls us to. He says, I want you to stop living for yourself and I want you to start living for others. And everything about our culture says live for yourself. Everything. Get a bigger house, accumulate more wealth, get a better career, go on holiday as often as you can, play as much sport as you can, just... Consume, 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 consume. And Jesus says, he speaks into that and he says, I've called you, I've chosen you, I've set you apart, and I want you to be a person that lives differently, that lives for others. And you know what that's going to mean? It means that you're going to sacrifice something of those things that you could do all the time for the sake of serving other people. And I want to say to you, I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to say that that's easy, living by the power of the Spirit. Because everything in us wants comfort. Everything in us wants personal peace and affluence. Everything in us wants our, our lot to be a little bit easier. As human beings. And yet into that, the gospel comes and it shakes us up and says, actually, I'm challenging. Jesus says, I'm, I, as I came to live for others, I'm calling you to live for others. I'm calling you to live for your neighbor. I'm calling you to live for the community. I'm calling you. It's not that I don't want you to enjoy good things, because we'll look now and uh, see what the scripture says about that. But this, this, what I'm trying to drive at this morning, is an uncomfortable, unfashionable thing that the world doesn't like. It's called covenant. <laughs> it's called covenant. And as we, as we allow the covenant that God has, has initiated 
with, with, for us through Jesus. He's initiated a covenant that is eternal, and it's through His blood, and it doesn't change. He initiates that, and we embrace it, and we say, thank you, God. He calls us to live for other people here in a covenantal way. And basically, covenant means this. It's a basic promise to God to honor Him by living an other-centered, unselfish life. (laughs) It's a commitment to building His kingdom. It's a commitment to a community of faith which is worked out in a family. It's a commitment together. It's not a convenient thing. It's not a convenient gospel. <laughs> I want to promise. I want to say this to you as as nice as I can. I, I don't think we, we we're not trying to offend people uh, from the pulpit in this church because I don't think that's good. But at the same time, I want to be someone that and, and everyone who preaches from this pulpit wants to preach the truth to you. And sometimes the truth makes you really uncomfortable. Why does he have to say that that I shouldn't do that? Well, because it's good for you. And the world might say it's okay, but the Bible says it's not good for you. And so this is the, this is the, this is the thing of every preacher, isn't it? You want to preach the truth, you want to set people free, but some things are going to be challenging. And I trust that I'm not ever going to intentionally offend anybody, but I do want to preach the truth. Amen? So I want to call you this morning to two very simple things. One, and this is a magnificent high call of the grace of God in our lives. And it's the first thing I want to call you to this year as a community is that together we live the gospel and we preach the gospel with our words and with our lives. I'm asking you to commit yourself to that. Secondly, I'm, I'm calling you as, as a bunch of, of people that have joined your hearts to this church, under grace, not legalistically, but under grace to help build this community of faith as a band of brothers and sisters together. Yes? Covenanted together. I'm, I'm saying up front that that's going to inconvenience us sometimes. <laughs> it is. How many of you... If you if you like me, I don't I don't jump out of bed at six o'clock in the morning. I promise you I don't. I stumble out of bed at six o'clock in the morning, every morning, most mornings, and I just make it down to the kitchen. And while I put on the kettle, I'm like trying to get myself just God help me please. It's still dark outside. I don't I don't I I'll rather be in bed with Helen right now, but God, I know that I need to read your word and pray, so please help me. And I put on the kettle, and I make a big filter coffee. (laughs) And I drink it. And as I drink it, I feel something of life begin to germinate again. And then I can open my Bible, and I can read, and I can pray. It's not easy! Anyone who pretends it easy is fooling you. It's not easy. And I'll tell you why it's not easy, because the person that wants you least of all to read the Word and pray is the devil. He knows when you get into the Word and pray, something of faith is going to be stirred in your life. So it's not easy for me. And, and I'm saying that because I know it's not easy for you, but it is worth it. It is not convenient, but it is worth it. 
So I want to call you to the high call of preaching the grace of God through your life. I want to call you to the high call of preaching and, and together as a band of brothers, living a, a community together this year and building this community of faith together. And so part of that is choosing to love each other, it's choosing, even when it's hard, it's choosing to think the best of each other, not to give in to gossip. It's a decision to live not for my own selfishness, but for the good of others. It's a decision to prioritize my life, my time, and how I use my money around the priority of the kingdom and not just my own little kingdom, my own little family. Ultimately, it's a choice to live for Jesus. And uh, I also want to call you to this. Jesus said this. These are not my words. These are his words. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Okay? All these things. Are these things just spiritual blessings? No, they are spiritual blessings, but Jesus also clearly said, whoever forsakes homes and family and career for me, will find family and friends and career. It's an amazing thing. As you start living for Him, He organizes and orchestrates sovereignly your life. And everything that you think you were going to lose, you gain along the way. I don't have any money. I have not got a magnificent pension. I'm not saying this for any other reason but to say this. In the, in the course of my life, I have visited I don't know how many countries. <laughs> I could never pay for that myself. God blesses you, and you get invited to talk here and preach, and you see, you see magnificent, I've seen I don't know how many countries, I, I don't think I would be exaggerating, I've visited 40 countries in the world. How has it happened? I don't know, I've never had the money to pay, but I've always, God has opened the way. I've stayed in the most magnificent places all over the world, hotels that I've never had money to pay for, people's homes on the floor with Petri snoring next to me in Slovenia. All I'm trying to say to you, all these things will be added to you as you seek the kingdom. It's a testimony of my life. And I, I know it's a testimony of many of your lives. And so these things, I want to encourage you, these things are husbands and wives. Oh, if I move somewhere else, I'm more likely to find a husband or a wife. Well, you can go and do that if you want, or you can trust God and say, God, I trust you that you're going to provide for me. <laughs> Friends, Career, I hope, a future, all these things will be added to you as you seek first the kingdom, as you build your life on this bedrock of His covenant that is initiated with you and the covenant of community that we have with each other. That's a high and a noble call. It's a wonderful thing. Have I already been going half an hour? Okay. Okay, so that was that was that was the hopefully encouraging you. Now I'd just like to. It'll take me about probably ten minutes to read some of these things. I'm going to read some of this article that you might have seen in the Sunday Telegraph last year, and it kind of crystallized first um, of January. It kind of crystallizes something of what I'm trying to say around community and building together. Uh, Peter Osborne wrote this article, and he was talking about the last fifty years and how the church has been shrinking in the last 50 years, but in the last 10 years, something amazing has started to happen in the UK, 
and particularly in London. And he, he quotes four examples which I want to give to you. The first is a church called St. Mary's in Islington, uh, which has been growing. All right? And he says this, Church attendance in free fall for so long, church attendances, have started to rise again, particularly in Britain's capital city. Numbers on the electoral rolls are increasing by well over 2% every year, while some churches have seen truly dramatic rises in numbers. Change is afoot. For many years, it was accepted that Christianity was all but dead, an anachronistic relic of the past whose foundations had been destroyed by modern science and rationalism before being left behind by the cultural and sexual revolution of the 60s. And the figures seem to bear that out. Church attendance, which stood around 50% in the middle of the 19th century, had declined to around 12% in 1979, or 5.4 million people. By 1998, it was almost halved to 7.5%, and when the most recent census was conducted in 2005, it was discovered that only 6.3% of the population, then 3.2 million people, were regular churchgoers. The number of people calling themselves members of the Church of England collapsed to about 20%, according to the, the, the British Social Attitude Survey, down from 40% as recently as 1983. More than half of all Britons, according to the British, the British Social Attitudes uh, Survey, say they have no religion and never attend a religious service. Despondent churchmen judged that there were just too many alternative attractions, Sunday shopping, sports fixtures, and the relentless secularism of modern Britain. Only Islam, fueled by immigration and a more disciplined and certain faith, appeared to be growing. But as St. Mary's Upper Street shows, there's still a yearning for faith. Indeed, as the second decade of the 21st century gets underway, there is surely a change of public moods. Listen to this, please. There have been many wonderful things about the last half century, but it is impossible to deny that it has been an era of materialism and selfishness. This is a journalist writing. The religious impulse has not quite vanished, but the teachings of the church have been mocked and suppressed. But it might be that in an age of austerity, we are collectively coming back to the profound and ancient verities of the gospel. Amen. So that's the first little paragraph. The second one, he cites an example of a church called City Church London, which is part of New Frontiers. It's led by a guy called David Stroud. It meets down on, in the Strand somewhere. And he says this, their attendance has soared to an amazing 600 in seven years since it was founded over lunch at the Strand Palace Hotel in 2004. We couldn't afford a church building, remembers the pastor, David Stroud. At first, his church met in the new Connaught rooms in Covent Garden, and when the expense proved successful, Christchurch sought something larger and now holds a service at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. on Sundays at the Mermaid Theater. The evangelical mission is enhanced by prayer groups that meet in homes, coffee shops, and restaurants across the capital. Christchurch may not be a local church, but it is nevertheless seeking to develop a community mainly students and young professionals, many of whom have recently moved to London. It calls itself non-denominational. From a sociological point of view, says David Stroud, the attraction is a longing for community, a longing to belong, and a search for meaning. 
We preach an orthodox Christian message, do that well, and you have to shut the doors to keep them out. And then another example. He says, uh, Osborne says, even more phenomenal growth is being seen in the Pentecostal churches springing up on the suburbs of Britain's biggest cities and attracting vast congregations of immigrants from African countries such as Ghana and Nigeria. These Pentecostal churches meet a vast yearning for spirituality and cater for congregations of 10,000 or more. Did you know that there are, me- there are numbers of churches in London of 10,000 or more? Numbers. Recently, the Redeemed Church of God, and this happened just before Christmas, reported an incredible 40,000-strong congregation for an all-night prayer meeting at London's Excel Center. 40,000 people got together before Christmas to pray the whole night. Yes, it is worth saying, wow. I know you would say, wow, because that's what you do. There are some amazing things happening. Something has changed. Something is changing. The last example he gives is of Hillsong. All of you, many of you know Hillsong. A Pentecostal megachurch found in Australia which attracts a global congregation in London that has seen membership rise from 200 to 10,000 in 12 years. As with other growing churches, it's about more than the Sunday worship. As the website announces, we meet during the week in small informal groups known as connect groups. We serve our local community together. Some go to college in the evenings to learn more about God's Word. We socialize together. We do life on our own. No, we do life Together. It's about community. It's about more than just you and your family. It's about community. It's about all of us. Are you finding this encouraging? Time. Are you giving me the time? I will be finished in, I promise you, in five minutes. This is the big picture for the year. More than 1.7 million people attend the Church of England services in an average month. 1.7 million people. This stunned me. This figure could be larger, but it's still enormous. Listen to this. Far more than the number of people who attend Sunday football matches. Far more. That is wonderful. There's more people going to church on a Sunday that go to worship at the national sport, which is football. Norwich City, I'm afraid. He says this, church people tend not to be as newsworthy as footballers. Their Christian values stand at an angle to the brash, thrill-seeking, instant instant consumer culture that has become dominant in Britain over the last half century. These eternal values do not simply make themselves known through attendance at Sunday services. Churches are today finding all kinds of ways to connect with the local community. The National Trust Chairman, Sir Simon Jenkins, says this, As neighborhood facilities such as the post office, the shop, the pub, the surgery, the the police house, the branch library, and the village school disappear, it is ironic that the one ubiquitous beacon of local community in a secular society is one that has stood since the Middle Ages. It is the church steeple. (laughs) More than 1.5 million people now use local churches as the basis for their voluntary work. 1.5 million people. 
He then quotes, lastly, quotes a guy called um, Fraser who talks about how church attendance has changed during the 60s, and he says this, the only value people were prepared to accept in the 60s was freedom. Freedom. Freedom! I want to be free. Don't tell me what to do. That became the trump card that was always played. The only way of looking at the world. Then he says this, the church is good at articulating other values. The community rather than the individual. The community rather than the individual. So I want to conclude. There's five statements of faith that I would like to make for this year that I have faith for. I have faith that this year God can more fully fashion us into a community of faith that loves Him and loves each other. I have faith for that. I have faith that this year this church can see many, many saved, added to salvation. As we live the gospel, as we preach the gospel during the week, we are on paper about 200 adults and kids. I believe, I have faith that by the end of this year, we will, we will see 300 in this church. I'm believing for 100 salvations this year. No? Yes? Come on. I hope you believe with me. I hope you'll pray with me. I hope you'll invite your friends. I hope they will certainly hear the gospel and some of them will be saved. I believe that as we preach the gospel. I believe, I have faith, that all of us can be changed by the Spirit that we can live more for others than we do for our own selfish needs. I have faith in that. (laughs) I have faith... That as we seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added to us. Family, friends, his provision, his future for us, signs and wonders, his Holy Spirit in an added measure. I have faith for that. I have faith that this year, through the faithful and sacrificial giving of this community, no ministry will be lacking in people, No ministry would be lacking in finances that we truly can become an outward-focused, giving church in every way. I have faith that this year it can happen. It will happen. And I trust that something of your own faith will be stirred, something of your own faith will choose God to believe for big things as we stand on the beginning of this year anticipating every good thing that He wants to pour out upon us. Amen? I know it's been a bit longer this morning, but I felt like it's necessary to try and communicate something of that. Next week, we're going to look at some of the details of how the teams are going to function, what we're going to be doing, who we're inviting into the church, and I really trust that it's going to be a great, great adventure in God this year. Amen?